we did have 60 plus people either waiting or so on, you know, I've kind of been, I think this kind of like honorable mention, you know, like, you know, placing for, you know, you've got Seabiscuit, we've got whatever. And I'm like, you know, going from like, so am I the mule or am I just, I just missed a ribbon. Like, and they're like, just missed the ribbon, Gabby, you know, but, you know, so I'm like, okay, the next show. But, you know, again, we're going to be patient and we're going to wait and we're going to bide our time. So I think it kind of goes both ways and it is on a case by case basis. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. In her 17-year career at Sotheby's, Gabriella Palmieri presided over the most valuable contemporary art day sale ever held. She was involved in the sale of Adam Sanders' collection and worked with the estate of Alan Stone. Since establishing Palmieri Fine Art, Gabriella has worked on the Emily and Jerry Spiegel collection and the sale of Barbara Lee Diamondstein Spielvogel and Carl Spielvogel's collection. She also advised on the Brillenborg Capril collection and the sale of a major collection of Pictures Generation works along with her work for many other clients. In this podcast, we discuss the recent May sales in New York, as well as her take on what collectors want in the market right now. I hope you enjoy it. Gabby Palmieri, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marian. I'm so honored. Well, it's our honor to have you. Since we're close to the auctions, what do you make of this last sales cycle? Was it good, bad, indifferent? I mean, it was, I think out of all of, I mean, like, let's, let's date ourselves here. So this is, you know, I'm 22 years and counting in this space. And I think that this sales season proved to be the most unpredictable. Um, And I think that it was really, I think that it was, it, it was very difficult Um, not only at the same time that the auctions were happening, that all of a sudden, you know, we look at the sale auctions and notwithstanding the fairs and everything opening at the same time was that it was a juggernaut by not only by lot count, but by value. Um, You know, we now go from having 1 billion, let's go Austin Powers style, like $1 billion worth of material to close to $2 billion needing to trade hands Um, in a biblical sense, right? 14 auctions in 11 days or something to that sense. And to say that at the same exact time that this is happening, that the market, financial markets take a beating, I think that this was kind of like, I mean, this was better than Netflix or Hulu or Ozark. I mean, you were like, what was going to happen? I think that that would be my take on the season was its absolute lack of predictability. So work backwards with that for me. You're an art advisor. You have clients. They call you up. Are they saying, I, you know, I can't deal with these markets crashing. I don't want to buy art. I've got, you know, I've got no more money. Or are they saying, uh, I can't put money into the financial markets because that might disappear. I'd rather put it into art. What's the reaction from the collector? 
Um, I think it was interesting. So my clients in this sense, my clients were very much kind of waiting for this, like, what was that, that, that song in the eighties waiting for the star to fall. Right. I think my clients were really much like saying, is this the moment that we are going to see the auctions be a land of opportunity, you know, and we're have a paddle and we're not afraid to use it. And it was just, it didn't work out. I mean, we were the bridesmaid and not the bride in several instances. And on the sense for the clients that we advised where we were selling, um, you know, again, outperformed it big time. And so I think that our clients were very excited about the sales season in one sense as being an opportunity. And then those opportunities never unfolded. I'm assuming the opportunity lay on the emerging side of the market. That's where the market really performed beyond expectations, the top of the market did well, but not with any strength. They struggled to meet the expectations of the sellers. I mean, now there you really had a sense of the biblical nature of it, because it was to say, you know, we have three phones, three phones, then begot six phones, then begot nine phones, then 15 phones. And then when, you know, the, the, the auctioneers, whether it's, you know, Ollie or Henry or whoever, he was like, you know, I have interest here, you know, an estimate at 60 to 80, who will say 1.4 million, you know, I mean, it was just like, it was just the acceleration speed, especially in these categories that I think also, let's look at the categories. Um, and I think um, it might have been uh, written in someone's certain weekly facts and said, now that I think the quote was so great, it was something like, now that Venice is over, can we stop talking about these curated sales? And we have a highly curated sale and leave the curation to the curators and the auction houses be very happy with what they have. But yet as a marketing tool, um, I think we have to say that it was extremely successful um, where you have these, you know, whether you call them the wet paint sales, the flippers or us, whatever kind of category you want to call them, um, is to say that those sales garnered so much attention, whether they were like now, just now, almost now, soon to be then, but not later, um, you know, and having that really, I think what, you know, the, the definition of FOMO, the absolute de definition of like, I'm missing out on something um, and whatever the artist happens to be or whoever gender specific identifies as it, it was completely irrelevant. It was the context of those 18 or 20 so lots that I just think that because of the momentum, it started to just move along some extreme confidence. So I think that on a lot by lot basis, and let's be really specific to say that it was really because Sotheby's anchored it so much versus Christie's that had the 21st century, 20th century sales, which are highly successful in, in what they did. I mean, we will never, ever forget that Ernie Barnes hashtag, never forget. Um, and I will say that with regards to Phillips, always having that beautiful rhythm of the choreography of that really young material um, and blue chip. And I think that they had actually, when you really look at an auction, I think we can touch on that about Phillips, I think just really hit every note very well without stretching and overreaching on a very taxed market. And yet it was that, you know, where were you on Thursday, May 19th at 6 p.m.? And did you just see records after records? I mean, you know, the auctioneer that night, my Lord, he got his cardio. So this is fascinating to me. 
normally the, they front load the sales with a group of artists that there's a lot of demand for. Usually it's an artist who is uh, has a, a strong gallery that's controlling the waiting list. And the only way to really get access to work is via auction. And so they have, you know, a lot of bidders waiting to try and get these works. And it takes a while to satisfy a number of those bidders, but eventually they all do get satisfied and that artist kind of moves into a different realm. But someone like Shara Hughes, for example, there's uh, demand that just keeps going. They they keep putting these works in auctions in Hong Kong, London, New York, and the buyers keep bidding and we keep getting higher prices and new records. Is there something different going on there? That's a great question because, you know, we've I've asked the auction houses to kind of give me a little bit of color as we also have clients saying, listen, I, I own works by these wonderful artists, but like, it's just the delta between what they were acquired to as to the prices that they're achieving, just when we thought, you know, I mean, every sales season, it's like a star is born, right? And we kind of come out of it and say, well, who was that star? And to say that I think we just haven't seen since 2020, it be not only just sustained because it's specific to Shara, because you're bringing Shara up, who I think is an, a fantastic artist. But I think that it is everyone's kind of scratching their head because you would think that, okay, you know, underbidder, buyer is out, and now the next one is going to probably make less. There's a reasonable kind of assumption, right? Rather than an extraordinary assumption, a reasonable assumption that, you know, but I think if we were to kind of quickly just speed date our way through Artnet um, or, you know, or live art or anything, you'd basically say, say, so let me get this straight. There have been close to 30 Shara Hughes that have come to market in the last, you know, eight, less than 12 months in the last year. And each one kind of keeps sustaining itself. And maybe it's because the auction houses, even though they do calibrate the estimates, what they can be bought for at auction still represent still a bit of opportunity because of the increasingly hard and respectful measures that galleries are trying to take to make sure that these get placed. Um, a wonderful dealer who shall remain nameless um, to protect his innocence said, oh, no, 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 no. None of these paintings are even making a layover in any domestic capacity. They are just not being promised. They're not anything. They're going directly to the institutions. Um, and I think that that accountability of saying no matter how well they try to place them, the long waiting lists and clients just wanting their picture. Um, and there's just with the amount of liquidity that's out there. And I'm not saying that when we've seen these speculative rises before, whether or not it was, you know, the German artists um, in, you know, 2006 and 2007, or, you know, the zombie formalism that we saw in 2014 and so on and so forth. There's just so much more money out there and so many more buyers that it's kind of staggering when you say that something under $1 million looks affordable. So you're saying that the buyer of a, you know, four and a half million dollar Avery Singer or a Christina Quarles or um, a Shara Hughes painting for a couple of million dollars is is buying it because they want the art. They they'd rather have that work of art and this opportunity to own it than the cash. And they view the cash as something you know, I don't want to say expendable, but, you know, that they're getting value uh, for it. But we're not saying that it's speculation that 
someone's buying a four and a half million dollar Christina Quarles and they think they're going to turn around and in, you know, 12 or 18 months be able to sell it for, you know, eight million dollars or six million dollars and make a quick profit it, uh, from it. Or or maybe they are. I guess this should be a question rather than a statement. Correct. I think it is a question because we're all kind of scratching our heads, right? And we all kind of like for 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 all of us who kind of have sit through the auctions and you know, me having said on both sides of it, you know, I, I think out of my colleagues and I have so many colleagues I respect in this advisory space, a space that I've right, kind of, you know, fell into more than aspired to, I would say that um I have just never in, this was probably the first auction I had ever seen where we said, oh, that person got a great deal. Like why, like no, everyone sat on their paddles and you're just like, what a great buy. You know, like you just actually made money driving it off the lot. I think this was one of the first sale seasons where we're like, I don't know. And again, we keep being proven wrong. These are still artists who have beautiful, hopefully careers in front of them. Many more kind of shifts and turns and pushes and pulls. Um, let's go Hoffman on it, um, you know, to say that we're going to see, you know, extraordinary bodies of work going forward. So when the bar is now set so high commercially, let's not take critically, you know, commercially that, you know, does that become aspirational or does that now become, you know, something that becomes a slippery slope? And then again, because so many works are saturating the market, you know, all of the other things of supply and demand and everything else that we've learned about, you know, since we were in school, um, you know, start to play themselves out. So let's talk about this from the perspective of your clients. Are they doing this to make money? I would think not. I assume they're buying with the perspective of, they're going to hold on to the art for a while and it, it might not be immediately saleable, but that's not the point. The point is to have the art and there is a chance over time that many of these artists will come back uh, for a second look or come back into favor in some way. We're rediscovering artists from the 50s, 60s, and 70s all the time. And then there's these little mini booms in their markets. We're even seeing you know, you mentioned the Leipzig uh, school. You know, I think I saw Dirk Schraber uh, on the market recently. Uh, there are uh, artists like uh, Shiraga and Gutai that, um, you know, had a moment and then uh, uh, sort of faded, but works, you know, good works still come to, to market and do quite well. I'm curious to hear how your clients view it, given that, you know, the market has grown and grown over the last few years. There haven't been a lot of these pullbacks and, uh, you know, the smart, cautious approach hasn't necessarily been the right approach in recent years. True. I mean, this is such a good question because I think, you know, I, I, I would have to say the collectors, um, and I can only say this on a very subjective level, is that the collectors I work with, um, I have the privilege of working with collectors who, um, you know, do have extraordinary access because of their relationships with institutions. And um, so my advisory for them with them, you know, has, has really little to do with that. They have wonderful relationships with their curators, whatever town they live in. They are very um, philanthropic in their own way in terms of supporting the institutions and supporting exhibitions. You know, they kind of like you know, I, I'm not going to say that, you know, everyone is so poor, you know, but they are like the model citizens, if you will. And so my role with them is not that. And I think if anything, um, the, the, the credibility I have with these collectors are collectors who, you know, have multiple homes, 
but are also saying like, we want to kind of, we have our young artists that it's just because we really either love their work or we love that curator or we love that gallery. You know, they've got incredible relationships with the galleries. Um, but my role to them is kind of then on the other sides of the collection to say, you know, where are we missing kind of, you know, art historically or where are we kind of focusing? I mean, these are clients when I was in the day sales, you know, and I had an amazing um, lunch uh, with members of the Sotheby's Alumni Association. And we were talking about, and they were teasing me saying, Gabby, like we remember you in 2003 where I had Frankenthalers at 70 to 90,000. And I'm like, buy my Frankenthalers. And everyone was like, that's really cute. And I remember having to convince, um, and, and he took it. So I give him all the credit in the world, dear friend and mentor, Tobias Meyer. And I put a, I begged him to put a beautiful Frankenthaler in the Sotheby's evening sale. And it would have been the first painting that was in an evening sale um, since 1989. And it was a painting called Habsburg's Palace. And it came from a Bennington professor and it was a beautiful painting. And, you know, at 150 to two, it made close to 700,000. And everyone was like, <gasps> So, um, you know, what I'm saying is, is like, I've just seen different trends and now that Frankenthaler is probably worth around 5 million. And you sit and, and, and everyone is like the laundry list. It's just like, I mean, you think it's just like hitting forward, forward, forward. But my point is kind of like my, my role with my clients is actually us trying to understand this as best as we're able. You know, you could even say an artist like Stanley Whitney, right? Where you just say Stanley Whitney, um, who, you know, I think is an incredible, you really understand that he was Gustin's studio assistant and then you really start to see his colors and you start to see everything that Stanley, I mean, how long did it take for everyone to kind of have that aha moment and to keep on seeing Stanley Whitney's where you just, you're, you know, it's not like, again, a body of work where you're saying, yes, the earlier works, which are wider and brushier versus the kind of more literal paintings that we certainly saw, I would want to say when they were in, in Castle, right, in 2017. And um, you just kind of say like, how, what, you know, everyone thought they were tapping out at 500,000, then, uh, you know, okay, a million, and then three come out now 2 million. And you know that 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 enthusiasm for it is still unabated, and we still haven't seen that. So, I guess I'm kind of in a roundabout way saying, I guess my role with clients when they want to pursue something on the secondary is just saying, like, you know, we can wait. But if you really like this painting, again, if it's you know, it's if you really want a painting, let's give it a go. But also knowing, like, you know, we go in it buyer beware. Right. Like as long as you have all of those kind of disclosures and conversations in advance and then say, OK, like now we're tapping out. Um, but, you know, I, I think that especially for it, let's even take an artist like Maria Berrio. Right. And if you want her earlier work, you know, there is a difference that we've already seen for her, for her paintings that have been the, the, the shining moments in auction compared to her new work that is beautifully presented by Victoria Miro. So if you really want one of the early paintings, it's not like you're waiting for for one to come out of the studio because it is going to be something different. So, you know, what does it say? Like the heart wants what the heart wants. Um, that's where, you know, that's where you say, okay, like, let's, let's go for it. Give me the anatomy of that since we've um, alighted on it. She's, she's as good an example as any uh, of a number of other artists. Is it because Victoria Miro is noted for her, the control she exerts over the market for her artist's work uh, and that she's been promoted well to collectors? And that promotion is having a spillover effect 
for other collectors who you know can't make the waiting list aren't being given work so the only place they can go is to auction to get the work and this process of work selling for a million a million and a half is bringing more work you know out from collectors or is it that people are actually learning about the earlier work and searching for it you know in particular I mean, great question. I think it's also a bit of like a perfect storm of tastes are changing, right? And I think that there are artists that you can say that here is an artist, and just to take kind of Maria Barrio, is that here is an artist who, I mean, if you really want to look at one of those collages and say OCD, like, I mean, the fact that these are so labored, kind of the dialogue she has with the handmade, um, you know, this fabrication of the handmade paper in Japan, and kind of, you know, looking at someone who studied at Parsons, you know, had years of works. I mean, I remember seeing those shows of Praxis, and kind of saying she's, she's onto something, because it was just also this kind of figuration, right? colorful, um, but it had a narrative to this, right? Like versus the divorcing of the narrative and that kind of, you know, um, and I thought it was kind of interesting because if you stood in a certain way, you kind of saw an Amy Sherald um, at Phillips and then you saw their Maria Berrio. And you just said like, both of these are gonna fly, but for very different reasons. And yet I think that it's kind of, when I look at something like Maria Berrio, I kind of ask people, do you remember where we were when Doig? And 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 it's interesting because again, Victoria Miro, art, you know, Doig's just all of a sudden said, you know, gotta have it, must have it. And then the numbers were like, wait, 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 wait. Where did this go from being a six hundred thousand dollar artist to a ten million dollar artist? And you know, and I think that I'm saying, I think that it's again, that taste, that want, that kind of validation that the auctions make to say like, it makes a certain price. So therefore we should be looking at this artist in a more critical way. You mentioned the Ernie Barnes sale. And I tried to think after that auction happened of a, of a similar bidding that I'd witnessed. And what came to mind was the Peter Doig sale. I think that was in 2006 or seven. Afterwards, the reaction was, oh, it's just a couple of guys who are nuts. This will never last. And of course, since then, prices have gone up and up and you just you can't touch Doig. I mean, even the stuff that sold for 30, 35 million resold years later again for 30 or 35 million. So uh, it has lasted, even though at the time everyone thought uh, it couldn't. No, it's true. And I, I kind of I go back to Ernie because I thought I couldn't under I, I, I was sitting in the, the sales room and where I was sitting, I just happened to be sitting in front of the um, underbidder and kind of had, and to kind of even hear that banter at the moment where um, I, I, I kind the whole room was like, <gasps> like had the clutch your pearls moment where he said, you know, um, we're not going to give up. And the other one just said, well, I'm going to make you pay. And then, you know, the jumping of the bids, I mean, everyone was just like, is this happening? Is this happening? Is this really happening? And, you know, and so it's funny because it was that Ernie Barnes moment that I remember being in that Sotheby's sales room and still being a little bit of a puppy at the time when that painting kind of just was just the, the, the muscle behind it and the determination of owning that painting, that canoe, that particular picture, and then what it did for an entire market going forward and stained. And the next day, um, someone spent $2.3 million on another Barnes. And I asked Bill Perkins directly, you know, was that, were you bidding on that? And he said, no, I, I wanted that to be sold beforehand. 
So I had a better shot at buying it. And, you know, after he'd spent all his money, he wasn't going to go and bid. So someone else came in and bid on that work and believes it's, you know, worth much more than it was before the first one sold. Then in Hong Kong, another work sold for about half a million dollars. So in the the course of two weeks, that price level has been reconfirmed. also think of the nature of it, right? Because we always just, it's like, you know, let me look at the comparables, right? And comparables and comparables. So all of a sudden you basically get to say like, this is pennies on the dollar. Like you're such a genius. And, you know, it makes people have that extra confidence, right? And then the other people who who paid these very kind of, how shall we say, aspirational numbers, you know, they're kind of saying like, well, were you the buyer? Are you going after it? And they're kind of saying, listen, yo tango, no more money, like no good. And so I just think that what we, just to, to kind of say that we have a moment where we have this different of the aspirational buyer and the aspirational bidder um, with kind of coupled with this market confidence. But when you say tastes are changing and where you see the opportunities in different areas, you know, I mean, and, and I can say this, like that there was, you know, for a collector I work with that we bought, we were the very, very proud buyers of this um, IKB. And I can say this because of course, you know, Josh Bear misses nothing and caught me um, and announced it of just saying that we were the, the, the buyers on that beautiful Eve Klein IKB. And I just looked at that painting and looking at the comparables, you would have justified 5 million, 4 million, or had you seen the paintings in Tifaf? And the clients were like, well, you know, we, we got priced out of Eve Klein. It's always been this dream of ours, like, divine, divine, divine. And, you know, and yet the sponge was coming after it. And there really hadn't been a painting to do exactly that, to kind of give us this market confidence, like give us this kind of like, oh, okay, I'm not the only person out there, right? Like you kind of have that mentality of like, okay, so we're all jumping, like, so it must be a good idea. And, you know, and, and speaking with my, you know, many of my former colleagues who are at Phillips and kind of them just saying, listen, we've sent out a billion condition reports on, you know, on this work and saying, okay, well, again, but we still just have this one phone. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, I've also been on both sides where there's one phone and we're paying over the high estimate. And then there's been six phones and it was a race to the reserve, right? So you say, okay, here we are. And they, you know, we buy it with an estimate of two to three and we buy it for you know two two fifty hammer um with you know being the bad person that was like you know cutting a bid and and henry didn't you know chase me out of the building but took it and nothing else happened and then the clients were so like no 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 like gabby like you what what happened they were so confused and a bit concerned and then a few lots later the sponge just all of a sudden said, you know, so it was so interesting to then say, maybe had that sponge come before, would more people have had confidence in the IKB, which was just such a beautiful painting that had been in the same collection since I think they bought it in auction in the 90s. And yet, and then so after the fact, I got a lot of messages from people saying, what a buy, what a buy, what a buy. But it wasn't even anything other than like, we'd always been looking for one. This was just looked like a great opportunity. And we just happened to be there. And then we were kind of like, it's my, it's ours. Like what? And I just, I do believe that that you know there still are those moments in auction, evening sales and day sales combined. Um, but it's 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 it is in different sectors, and it's just you know that that confidence that isn't happening in those sectors. I think there's a more sophisticated game theory to be developed here. You know, you can have, as you said, uh, six telephone bidders and it quickly peter out or they were all, you know, ready to pay the same number. 
or you can have two determined bidders who can take it to the moon. I think that's what's fascinating about auction. You never know what's going to show up. Uh, uh, we all the time pay attention to these atmospherics because we're trying to figure out, do people feel like now is the time that the money is more important to them than the art? Or is that the art is this is the last opportunity they're ever going to get to get this work and the money just isn't that important to them? I want to go back to something you said uh, earlier, because I think it's a, a fascinating subject that's not talked about nearly enough. You were talking about collectors who are close to curators, and I wanted to you know, focus on this issue about you know, collectors being forced to support an artist, sometimes even to you know, buy a work uh, alongside a second work that they're going to donate to a museum. How does that play out from the collector's point of view? I mean, is that an opportunity? Because if you're there to support an institution, that not only gives you the pleasure and cachet of supporting the institution, but also the opportunity uh, to get works from uh, uh, galleries that want uh, you to be supportive of that institution. Or is that a burden because you have to align yourself with an institution? Such a good question because I think it can kind of go both ways and I can kind of see it as since we're in this like gaming kind of theory right and you're in this kind of game mentality. It's like hate the game not the player, meaning you know you've got these galleries right and 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 we have to also think about the kind of healthier ecosystem right when you're kind of like is the consigner the artist like like the blurred lines right like. I mean, we've already had everyone be a bit of a Prius in these markets, right? Auction houses that are, no one can wield the power of the hammer better and they're doing private sales and all these other things. But as it relates to hating the game, not the player, you've got these galleries with these artists and um, very sought after artists. And let's talk about the, the smaller galleries, right? Um, before they, they may or may not get sort of absorbed into a bigger gallery. But, you know, they really want to A, struggle to place them well in order to also ensure that they are keeping that artist and keeping that program together because they have been the ones to support like so saying about the the curate the 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 the, the collector supporting that program well the person supporting that program has been the gallerist who's put on these like incredible shows and there have been many many articles kind of speaking to that and in a very kind of serious manner to say well how do you kind of hold on to one of these artists within this kind of stature? That being said, is that I think it goes both ways because I think collectors feel a bit handicapped and frustrated from time to time where they kind of really want a painting from the show and the gallery just has to have the bad news to say, listen, we have 14 paintings, you know, and we, we did have 60 plus people either waiting or so on, you know, I've kind of been, I think this kind of like honorable mention, you know, like, you know, placing for, you know, you've got Seabiscuit, we've got whatever. And I'm like, I, you know, going from like, so am I the mule or am I just, I just missed a ribbon. Like, and they're like, just missed the ribbon Gabby, you know, but you know, so I'm like, okay, the next show. But, you know, again, we're going to be patient and we're going to wait and we're going to bide our time. But I think it goes both ways because I think it's exactly that, like I'm tired of waiting. I don't want to or, you know, feeling tethered to the fact that, listen, we, we write a lot of checks for the institution. We do do our support. I don't really want to gift this one. You know, I, I'd like to own it. You know, I'd like to or I wouldn't want to buy one and gift one. Um, so I think it kind of goes both ways and it is on a case by case basis. 
well, let's just take Chris, Christina Quarles as an example. I don't know what they're selling for on the primary market, but just, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, they were selling for six figures on the secondary mar- market, and even having to buy two uh, is still a lot cheaper than having to spend four and a half million for one. I mean, let's, regardless of the quality of the work. I'm not saying her work is fungible, but I, I am... I can see from the perspective of the collector how that would be a cheaper approach than bidding to four and a half million for a particular work. Agreed. But I kind of think like this is what's made it interesting. And you really kind of got a little murkier um, during the pandemic because, you know, we couldn't sit in these auctions, right? And without sitting in the auctions, even if you were watching it in your high definition, you know, you're just like, you know, you got, they were so high definition and you're looking, I was like, you know, oh, that person just got a facial, like wonderful, you know, because, and you're sitting there watching them, but it really is, if you're just on the phone and you're not watching it, cause they also say the delays are so delayed because you're just like, you know, you, you have to tell the person, turn off your computer because, you know, the feed is, is you're, you're really, you know, you're, 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 you're not going to follow the cadence of these increments. And what was so interesting that I noticed is um, <laughs> sitting in these sales rooms, you know, you did have a lot of big commission bids. Okay. And these commission bids, you have to assume kind of perhaps came from Asia or read where just said, listen, you know, it's going to be two in the morning. It's going to be evening somewhere because these auctions are like, if you want a bid, we'll call you tomorrow because, you know, before you used to average 50 lots an hour, then it was like 45 lots an hour. And we catch these because being an auction house rat, like I was, and I don't mean rat in the provider, I mean, like, a, you know, whatever. I mean, just saying, like, like, I just was such a junkie to understand, like, the bidding spies and so on. And, you know, we capture all of this data on my team and we're like, did we really just go 27 lots an hour? Like we're actually treating some of these day sales now like evening sales, no? And so it's so funny sitting there in the day sales where you see those big numbers and the day sale moments of just kind of saying, did that, you know, artist or that Jade Fashion team or whoever it is just go for over a million. And then but if you're on the phone and you're saying the bid is over here and the bid is over here. And you're like, where is the bid? Tell me, is it in the book? Is it in the room? Is it on the phone? You know, so you're kind of tripped up because you're like, am I the only person? And again, going back to this game, there is so much fun with you, Marion, is just to say like, you know, you know, dealer showing a six and it's just like, I'd like to another card. I'd like to play another card, right? And then at the end of it, it's like, oh, sorry, dealer showing 21 because you're doing this really big bid against the book and you actually think it's multiple bids. And then you realize it was just you and one other person, but because the you're not there in person. And I kind of was watching this and saying like it was coming back into the sales room where I have clients that, you know, I bid for in the auctions and I've known for many, many moons and they want to bid with me because they're like, okay, where are these bids coming from? Like we want clarity that sometimes if you're just online, it's a bit not obvious, no? Yes. I mean, if you don't know who the sucker is, then the sucker is you. And I think that blackjack metaphor is is perfect. <laughs> like dealer shows 21, clear the chips off the table. So sorry. We could go on forever, and I'm just going to have to stop you here only because we have a time limit. And I hope uh, we can do this again, Gabby. It's been, uh, it's been great. Thank you. Just say when, Marion. Anything for you.
Thank you for joining us at the Intelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Intelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. Thank you.